October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 52, The Protestant Civil War, part 1. Last time, we talked about the First World War and how Adventists both thrived and suffered during it. Church growth was up, giving was up, good, good, but many Adventists from around the world suffered as conscientious objectors. In Germany, of course, the church encouraged Adventists to fight if they wanted to, which caused some Adventists to break away from the church and form the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement. And if you've been paying attention to Adventist news recently in the past few years, you will notice that uh, Reform Adventists and the Seventh-day Adventist Church have been talking. So dare we hope that we can work things out a hundred years later? Who knows? Anyways, look, I've been struggling over the past ten episodes to figure out how best to talk about the change that has been going on in America in particular during this time. I mean, social change has been the elephant in the room, but we've never been able to devote enough attention to it. We've just always been mentioning it in the background as a kind of uh, hidden context for the events that we were discussing. If I could do things over again, I would have talked about the First World War during the intermission episode we had a few months ago, and then I would have begun Season 2 the way I began Season 1, by getting in our balloon and going up, 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 and then surveying the landscape. But this is something I agonize about, not you, right? Because you waited a month for an episode, and I'm the one figuring out how to organize this as I go along. So in this episode, we're going to devote a huge chunk of our time to talking about how the world has changed. By a huge chunk of our time, I mean all of this episode and all of the next episode. Because if you don't understand how the world is changing, you will never understand how the Adventist church changes as well. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, gosh, I hope this isn't some Lord of the Rings thing where he's about to go into some 20-page history of the elves. Can't we just get on with the story? Can't we find out what happens to A.G. Daniels and Prescott and all of those people? First of all, the history of the elves is awesome because it is such a, a fascinating, imaginative study on the implications of redemptive history if not all of us had fallen in Eden. But I guess you didn't tune in for a discussion on the elves. We have to talk about change because, again, you will never understand the Adventist story without understanding how the world, and especially the American world, changed between the Civil War and the First World War. And I want to begin in 1920, when a U.S. senator from Ohio was running for president. The First World War had just ended, and America had gone through a legitimately crazy year in 1919. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution had just been passed, outlawing alcohol, so welcome Prohibition. I'm sure this is going to work out. And then the 19th Amendment was passed, too, allowing women to vote. There seemed to be labor strikes and race riots every single month throughout 1919. Anarchists were mailing bombs to public officials. One of the bombs blew up the attorney general's home, by the way. Now, minutes before the bomb went off, a neighbor named Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been walking in front of the attorney general's house. All of this happened in one year. So this Ohio senator's name was Warren G. Harding. And his campaign for president was best known for his call for a, quote, 
return to normalcy. Harding told his supporters in Boston that, quote, America's present need is not heroics, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. My best judgment of America's need is to steady down, to get squarely on our feet, to make sure of the right path. End quote. Now, Harding believed in progress. He wasn't just some reactionary wishing it was 1850 again, but he, like many Americans, were bewildered by how much the world had changed in just the past few decades. All Harding wanted, like many Americans, was stability to slow down the change. Now, Adventists were skeptical that normalcy would ever return. Justice G. Lamson, an Adventist chaplain and teacher, wondered what Harding meant by normal, because normal seemed to be being redefined every single day. Social norms were changing, moral standards seemed to be changing, politics was changing, even prices. And yes, he makes it a point to mention how prices have changed. Now, this is something that's hard for us to understand, because prices for us change all the time. But when you've lived your whole life with with the price of something being the same, only for it to change toward the end of your life, that seems like a momentous thing. Prices were doubling. Prices were tripling on some products. So that led Lamson and other Adventists to wonder, what exactly is normal this day and age? What is normal? Now, historians divide up American history into neat little segments. It's really helpful of our American pioneers to coordinate their political and cultural efforts to make it easier on historians. So they call, that is they, the historians, call this period after the Civil War Reconstruction, and it's followed by the Gilded Age and then the Progressive Era, which lasted to the Great Depression. Now, calling these periods ages or eras reminds us that all of this change didn't happen at once. It didn't happen overnight. But it's as if the magma under the volcano was slowly building up pressure. Now, looking back, we can trace these trends throughout the decades. But in terms of Adventist's ability to process this change, to comprehend it, to manage it, to adapt to it, it felt like a seismic cultural bomb had just gone off. After the smoke cleared, the world had changed. It was the dawn of a new, much more secular age. But how did we get here? What exactly was changing? It turns out we can answer that very simply. Everything. And here are some of the highlights. First, immigration. Waves of immigrants began arriving in America at unprecedented rates. Some 15% of the people in America had been born in other countries. And it wasn't just the numbers of immigrants, but the types of immigrants. Because fewer and fewer immigrants spoke English. And it wasn't just that they didn't speak English, it was also that these immigrants naturally settled down in a city, which led to overcrowding and a fierce competition for jobs. So that's where that whole, the immigrants are going to steal our jobs thing comes from. Americans had always been confident that they could Americanize the immigrants, and they had. But the sheer number of non-English-speaking immigrants overwhelmed that confidence. Strolling through many neighborhoods in New York, 
New York at some times was three quarters immigrant. So, so strolling through many of these neighborhoods in New York felt like traveling to Europe. That frustrated many Americans who demanded that these immigrants learn English and adopt American ways of doing things. What's worse, many of these immigrants were Catholics. Now, America had been a Protestant country, overwhelmingly, and it believed it owed its soul, the country owed its soul to Protestant principles. Catholics were associated with old Europe, in other words, the part of the world which Americans had long ago left behind. And they were associated with hierarchy, and they were associated with superstition. So if America allowed Catholics to come in, wouldn't they try and corrupt America? Wouldn't there be a fight over America's soul? So many Americans, many Protestants, looked at the arrival of Catholic immigrants as an, as an ominous sign, and Adventists were included in that. Because when America was founded, all of that stuff about liberty for all and the pursuit of happiness really, really applied to English-speaking white men who owned property. It definitely did not apply to the slaves. And when those Italians and Irish and Germans and Polish and Jews and Catholics started coming off the boat in huge numbers, it was a huge test about what it meant to be an American, about whether America's founders really meant what they said. In short, it is around this time that America began to be a truly pluralistic society. Second, work. Work was changing. In the 1850s, Americans worked about 70 hours a week. The weekend hadn't been invented yet. Corn and wheat didn't just stop growing on Saturday. And this is part of the appeal of the Sunday loss throughout the 1800s, by the way. I mean, don't you want a day off, a day when no one can force you to work? But when we get to the 1900s, more people worked in factories than on farms. It was an incredible transformation. While you may have worked long hours on the farm, you were your own boss. It wasn't as dangerous or as mind-numbingly boring as being shut in a dark, dirty factory all day. There were tensions in these factories between owners and workers. In fact, around this time, 35,000 American workers were dying every year working in these factories. And another 500,000 to a million were injured. If we kept the same ratio, uh, considering the population of, of America at that time today, then, then work would be one of the top five or six causes of death today. It's insane to lose 35,000 people every single year. And of course, if you get hurt, if you're one of those 500,000 to a million people who get injured, then you're going hungry because there's no, there's no social safety net at this time. Many workers banded together and pooled their money to help those workers who got sick or, or injured. But otherwise, you had nothing. So, so many times, women and children were were pressed into service, they would be working as well, just so the family could eat. And of course, we have the formation of unions during these decades. They came in to represent the workers, but clashes with police and company guards were often violent. And during this time, many Protestants found it hard to reach industrial workers. Famous preachers like Henry Ward Beecher came down hard on unions, arguing that if all you can afford is bread, then you should be happy with bread, okay? Don't be greedy. Just be content with the lot that you have in life. Well, if you can't afford bread, 
you're not working hard enough. Protestant churches, including Adventists, unexpectedly found themselves to be the church of the middle class. It's not surprising that rhetoric like that did not exactly inspire the working man, the working woman, the working child. Okay, third, third factor, race. Fifty years after the Civil War ended, 90% of blacks were still stuck in the South. That began the change during the First World War when an exodus began. And over the next 50 years, blacks dispersed across the United States, often finding themselves in tense situations with police and other minorities. So race riots became a commonplace thing. A famous riot occurred in Springfield, Illinois, where a white mob, angry at the alleged crimes of two black men, began roaming the streets, murdering black people. So it's clear that America's color line question had never really calmed down, if it ever has, and Adventist leaders were wary of, of stepping into the controversy. They tended to preserve their conservatism on the issue and just keep their distance. Fourth, economics. The United States became the world's industrial powerhouse. Americans made more stuff in these factories than Britain, Germany, and France combined. Yet the gap between rich and poor was growing, and Adventists took notice. They lamented the growing wealth inequality, noting that wealth inequality only leads to great evils, one writer said. But industrialization enabled more Americans to buy more things. And the old Adventist rural values of frugality and industry found it hard to accept this new way of life when when if you if you tear some clothes, you can just go buy new clothes instead of repairing it over and over and over and over. It was hard to accept that new way of economic life. Fifth, geography. Simply put, America had been conquered. Frederick Jackson Turner began warning people in the 1890s that Americans had finally settled the land from the Atlantic to the Pacific and that the country would subsequently change. This is called his frontier thesis. And Turner's point was that when Europeans came here, they imported European ways of organizing the world. They brought state churches, they brought standing armies, they brought aristocracy, and so on. But the process of exploring and settling the frontier meant that future generations abandoned all of that. There was more land and there was people, so there's no need to set up a king. There's no way that you could possibly have such a strong central government in, let's say, Washington, controlling people who lived on the frontier in Colorado or Iowa. It was just impossible to exert that kind of control. So there was a, a certain degree of political independence that emerged in America not just because of, of some philosophical convictions of our pioneers, but just because of the nature of America, of the, of the frontier. There was also no need for an army, just a rugged man and a gun to protect his home. And that's where that kind of spirit of uh, self-defense and gun ownership comes from. This was the foundation of American individualism and American community and American democracy and American innovation and American violence. Right? The, the Western movie, the Western story. But with America settling down, with, with a lot of the land between the Atlantic and the Pacific organized, parceled out, settled, Turner predicted that 
What it meant to be an American was about to change. That is, as Americans moved from rural areas to cities, we were going to imbibe new and different values, and our country was about to look a little bit different. Okay, so we weren't settling down anywhere when we settled between the oceans. We were settling down increasingly in cities. Now, America's federal government was pretty small throughout the 1800s. Some like to say it's because of design, but really it's because the government couldn't do much before railroads and telegraphs and so on. And the reality is, is that when we settled in cities, we discovered that cities had problems only the government could solve, like paving streets or public health. You may not have needed a standing army on the frontier, but you needed one to defend vulnerable targets like the city. So, indeed, America began to change. One Adventist in Peoria, Illinois, lamented the fact that, quote, most of the old men are gone from the church, and that sermons don't seem to have the power they used to. Meanwhile, many Adventists are out on Sunday afternoon at the theater or the baseball game. Now, this Adventist knew exactly where to place the blame. He said, and I quote, Cities satisfy the restless cravings of a restless age, end quote. Now, it's easy to roll your eyes today and move along, but it's helpful to look at statements like these as, as Adventists trying to grapple with this urban shift, with this urban change, with the ending of frontier America. We're trying to figure out what it all means. Okay, sixth, the, the last of these is changes in philosophy. The dominant philosophy of the 1800s was something that we call Scottish common sense realism which is really just rolls off your tongue. Common sense philosophy basically said that the average person with common sense could arrive at a knowledge of the real world. You just needed to look and taste and see, and all of this debate about whether we can actually know what we know is just philosophical absurdity. Who cares? And as you can imagine, these ideas really caught on in America and were reflected by people like William Miller. All you need is a Bible and a concordance, right? You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or have an expensive education. Just read and use common sense and you can interpret the Bible accurately. Whenever someone tried to make the Bible complicated or mystical, then we can just consider them heretics and ignore them. But by the early 20th century, this common sense philosophy had begun to wear out. The Bible was clearly more than a book of facts that any man could easily understand. Why else do we have all of these denominations if it was so easy to interpret and arrive at the truth? Now, we could go on and on with more things that were changing in America, in the Western world, but I think you get the picture. The social, moral, religious, political, and economic order was breaking apart and, and, and being reforged in new ways. These were catastrophic, hugely disruptive changes, this isn't just the invention of a new technology or a new style of art. It was everything changing at once. People's sense of identity was shifting. What does it mean to be an American when you live in a neighborhood of people who are happy speaking Italian? What does it mean to be an Adventist with these rural values when people are moving to the city and seem to be having fun there? How does one navigate all of this change? How do you know which way to go when the world is changing around you? 
Now, I'm painting a very simple picture here, but what I want you to realize is how pervasive and how fundamental this change was. It wasn't change happening somewhere else to someone else. You couldn't escape it. I want you to realize how this change permeated every aspect of one's life and what you were the life you were used to having the routine you were used to having the sense of meaning that you were used to enjoying and attributing to the things which you did is now shifting it's now changing and that can make people feel insecure about this new world now looking back we would call this wave of changes we would say it's part of the philosophical shift to modernism we call ourselves postmodern now but each of these philosophical shifts change the frame by which we view ourselves and the world around us or perhaps a little bit more accurately we change and then we we apply a label like modernism or postmodernism to it now i could define modernism for you i could grab a textbook but i think it's actually better to let it maintain its vague wildness in your mind because that's kind of how it appeared to seventh day adventists john corliss wrote an article entitled what is modernism and subsequently failed you know to actually define what modernism was ww prescott took a shot at modernism three months later with an article called modernism explained and condemned this article was more helpful to the reader but actually spent more time agreeing with modernists than in actually condemning modernism so what's going on here adventists didn't use the word modernism to refer to broad social changes as much as they used it to refer to the rising tide of theological liberalism prescott and corliss sent mixed messages on the subject or at least unclear messages because they categorically rejected theological liberalism they rejected the ism but they sometimes found themselves in agreement with the liberals themselves especially catholic liberals who were at the moment waging a sort of war against the pope or against the papacy so prescott's article was basically we cannot believe in liberalism so now let me quote 500 words from some of these liberals and what they wrote against the pope now, I shouldn't have to say this, but just let me say it anyway. When I talk about liberals, I'm talking about liberals within a specific historical context. I'm not talking about Democrats. I'm not talking about that one person in your church who drinks coffee. Okay? I had three ladies in one of my churches who wore earrings, and they were kind of feisty, and I used to call them Jezebels. Okay, I'm not talking about any of that. You may call these people liberals, but that's not who I'm talking about. Liberal is not a value judgment. It's just a rather messy descriptor. So to Adventists, a theological liberal specifically meant a Christian who embraced evolution and higher criticism and things like that. Now, you've probably heard the term higher criticism thrown around. Today, it's a little bit more accurate to say historical criticism but we're going to keep saying higher criticism anyway because that's the phrase that Adventists used back then. Now, criticism doesn't mean focusing on the Bible's faults or complaining about the Bible. It just refers to a scientific method of investigating the Bible, a method with deep roots in history. Many higher critics were Christians. In fact, most of them were. 
in the beginning, and they decided to treat the Bible as a piece of literature to stop reading it with uh, rose-colored glasses in a sense of in a devotional sense. Now, tradition had said that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, etc., and yet Deuteronomy records Moses' death. So, how could Moses have written that? Was he resurrected? He was on his way up toward heaven, as it were, and God gave him a pen and said, hey, go finish your book, man. Right? How could he have written that? How do, we, how do we know Moses wrote any of Genesis? How do we really know that? In the minds of these liberals, they were liberating the Bible from centuries of tradition and starry-eyed devotional reading. They were asking hard questions. In fact, in, in their mind, this was a kind of second reformation, except this time they're not trying to reform the Catholics, although some were. They were also trying to reform the Protestants who had accrued all of these traditions as well. Of course, this led many liberals, this way of reading the Bible led many liberals to challenge doctrines like the resurrection, the inspiration of the Bible, the non-existence of miracles. They questioned the virgin birth of Jesus. Liberalism was bigger than higher criticism. At least, at least higher criticism led to a number of different issues, which we are not going to discuss. But the implications raised by these sort of doubts, by this questioning by these liberal Christians, were so controversial in England, for instance, that when seven liberal Anglicans published some essays, the ensuing debate was so fierce that it overwhelmed the publicity of Charles Darwin publishing Origin of the Species. It's as if the Anglican Church basically looked at Darwin and said, hey, you take a, you take a number, we'll get to you next. We have something more pressing right now. Now, all of this was a long time coming. Okay, In 1869, a future Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes received a book in the mail from a Harvard professor. The book was called The Primeval World of Hebrew Tradition. And it took a thoroughly modern look at some of the Genesis stories. Cain and Abel, for instance, was a story about the clash between shepherds and farmers who often butted heads, right? I mean, farmers want more land under private ownership. It's, it's kind of a more stable way of life, whereas shepherds want more public land that they can move their flocks over and, and graze from. So, so the author of this book says, Cain uh, and Abel isn't really a historical story. It's, it's really a, a story written probably by a shepherd who is complaining about the violence of farmers. Uh, no doubt this guy who wrote it was a very angry shepherd who didn't like farming, who thought all the land should be open for, for grazing. Anyways, you get the idea. This is how they've come to interpret stories like these. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes's reaction to the book was incisive. He wrote to its author, quote, The truth is staring the Christian world in the face that these stories of the old Hebrew books cannot be taken as literal statements of fact, end quote. Holmes credited the book as a turning point in his spiritual life. His eyes had been opened. He had realized the Bible stories he heard as a kid were just stories. And now he was beginning to see through them. Now he was beginning to grow up. In America, Henry Ward Beecher began separating himself from his denomination, became one of the first to fully embrace evolution. Beecher chastised those clergy who he found, quote, 
standing tremulous on the edge of fear in regard to the great advance that God is making today, end quote. As liberalism swiftly conquered universities like Harvard, theological conservatives resented Beecher's idea that they were mere reactionary, that they were just standing on the edge, afraid of change, afraid of what God was doing in the world today, clinging to their power. You see, from the conservative perspective, all of this felt unfair. The conservatives hadn't changed. They were just minding their own business when these liberals came out of nowhere told them that they needed to change their theology, waited two seconds for them to change, and when they didn't, the liberals rode off into the sunset laughing and having fun. It had all happened so suddenly. Conservative evangelicals had never thought of themselves as conservative before. They were just standing where they always had stood, and they suddenly found themselves being left behind. So it was inevitable that many of these conservatives would react with grumpiness. It was also unfair. It felt like getting stabbed in the back. One day you're a respectable Christian and the next day you're being called a stubborn stick in the mud who is behind the times. One Adventist editor bitterly complained about this being left behind feeling. Quote, The clergyman who today is bold enough to assert his refusal to accept evolution or higher criticism is quite generally looked upon with a degree of pity by college-bred theologians. He is by them considered out of date and lacking either in education or mental acumen. In other words, they look at him as some hayseed, as some theological redneck who is behind the times. The editor went on quoting one higher critic who believed that modern psychotherapy best explained Jesus' supposed miracles. The editor noted, quote, we do not remember ever having seen a statement so disrespectful to heaven as this just quoted, end quote. Another Avenist writer would pipe up and call higher criticism a cancer. And yet, there were also voices among Adventists who not just be reactionary, not just to react. Charles Snow, the editor I mentioned a few seconds ago, later wrote that Adventists need to be careful how they respond to the higher critics, lest we come to have a spirit of incessant criticism. Snow added, The truth of God never loses anything by honest investigation. End quote. Now that was the old view of Scottish common sense realism. Hadn't archaeology, or evolution for that matter, we'll get to evolution in another episode, hadn't archaeology and evolution discovered that honest investigations sometimes lead people away from the Bible? Now, the standard evangelical response to Darwin, of course, was that his investigation wasn't honest. But too many people over the decades that followed were coming to similar conclusions as Darwin, were geologists, biologists, and many of the other ologists out there in on a conspiracy to undermine evangelical Christianity? I mean, are they all dishonest? Do they just get together in a secret meeting and say, let's all support evolution? What do you make of that? That so many individuals across a number of scientific fields were all coming to similar conclusions. But Snow's point should be well taken. He noted that the attitude one brings to Bible study often determines what you get out of it. If you just read the Bible with the intent to reaffirm what you already believe, then that's what you're going to find. 
If you want to undermine, if that's the way you read the Bible, you're looking for holes, you're looking for excuses, then that's what you're going to find. And Snow said that before you reject an old interpretation, can you just make sure that you actually understand it first? Why does Snow write this? The ferocity of the avenous reaction against theological liberalism and evolution seems to indicate that they felt threatened in some way. Certainly they felt threatened in the sense that the old order of things was being threatened, which Adventism had, had uh, been very comfortable with. But I wonder, were young Adventists enticed by these new trends? Were some leaving the church? Everything seemed to be changing, and the change was overwhelming in general. Milton Wilcox, an old editor of Science of the Times, wrote, Quote, in the religious world is unrest, uncertainty, division. The old certitudes are passing. The human creeds are crumbling. And many minds doubt sits on the throne of faith. And hope in the former certainties are clean gone with many. But few of the old standard bearers are left. End quote. Wilcox was right about the last line. By that point, the pioneers were all dead. And the next generation, the A.G. Danielses and Willie Whites of the world, they had gray hair. Now, another Adventist chipped in, quote, It is amazing how mad our modern world is after amusement. Our modern world is content with nothing that is not highly spiced with entertainment. Our preachers must have their stories. Our professors must be clever as well as learned. And our evangelists, God forgive us, must be vulgar before our attention is much attracted. Is it any wonder that our world has lost a sense of reverence? End quote. Losing a sense of reverence may be one of the most succinct Adventist definitions of the effects of modernism. Now, if you're an Adventist, I'm going to guess that you have one of two reactions to... Uh, what these Adventists are saying. You're either nodding your head that, yes, the world truly has gone crazy, or you're shaking your head at these narrow-minded Adventists whining about preachers being expected to use stories. I mean, come on! Or maybe you understand both of these reactions. Adventists then, and perhaps Adventists now, have yet to resolve where they fit in in this new world. To many Adventists, it felt that they were being left behind. I'll just give you a couple examples. In the 1800s, many Christians considered Adventists to be something like an odd cousin. We generally had respectful relationships with other Christians. In the 1950s, however, there was a very public, very painful situation, which we will eventually get to, where prominent evangelicals were debating whether Adventists were even Christian. Some labeled Adventists a cult. Now, you didn't have that in the 1800s. To Adventists, it was like, hey, we were neighbors. You used to wave when you got the mail. Now you act like you don't even know us. The world had changed, and Adventists were still trying to figure out how they fit into it. We might also talk about how Adventists struggled to publish their religious liberty magazines and how that changed. Besides, the imminent threat of Sunday law seemed to be a thing of the past, the deeper you get into the 20th century. 
Catholics were coming to America, not with swords, as was feared, but with pens. They started schools and magazines, and they started helping the poor, those workers in the factories which Protestants found so difficult to reach. Adventists noticed that Protestant school textbooks began to soften their language, began to soften their criticism of Rome. Seemingly overnight, Protestants just gave up easily. While Adventists vigorously resisted Catholic influence, they increasingly stood alone. Adventist leaders signaled the need for a new tone to reflect this new world. So one of them wrote, quote, We are not to hurl darts at those in error, but to teach the principles of Protestantism, the principles of the gospel, end quote. Now the change in tone was positive. It was a positive step in addressing the changing world. But it wasn't enough. Readership declined as Protestants began coming to terms with the new Catholic reality in America. The public mood was shifting so that those criticizing Catholicism, as Adventists had done, as many Protestants had done, were now considered bigots. They were relics of a Reformation that was ancient history. Catholics are not our big threat right now. Evolution is our big threat right now. Theological liberalism is our big threat right now. And so as the 20th century rolled on, Protestants had bigger problems than Catholics. A Protestant civil war thus began between liberals and conservative evangelicals, who came to be called, referred to, as fundamentalists. To be sure, both sides ignored Adventists. We were a little bit of a small fish in the pond. But Adventists still felt like they had a stake in this fight between liberals and fundamentalists. Back in 1873, the president of Boston University said that there isn't an atheist in America who could match an intelligent Christian in debate. Thirty years later, some were wondering whether he had gotten it backwards. We'll deal with evolution, with the social gospel, and the rise of fundamentalism next time. But I can tell you one thing right now. We're never going back to normal. And here's your friendly reminder that this episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and camels. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So 
If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.